From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Anne Mossop. Hi, I'm Gina Davis. I am an actor, and what I wanted to be when I was a kid was an actor. You're very unusual, Gina, in that you knew from when you were very young Mm -hmm. that you wanted to be in the movies. How did you know? I, you know, I don't know because um, my parents told me I was three when I when I announced to them that I was going to be in movies. What could I possibly have seen? How did I even know that that was a profession? I really can't say. My family only saw Disney movies back in the fifties. <laughs> they they decided, you know, we know those are going to be safe and and uh, proper. So I can't. I don't because if it was a cartoon, how would I know that a real person could do it? I just don't know. And so it was one of those family stories that your parents said to you. When you were three, you told us you were going to be an actor. Exactly. Was that something that followed through in terms of, you know, acting at school that you kind of... Not really. No. I mean, my my best friend and I were always putting on plays in her basement uh, just for our parents, but I didn't really... Do, I didn't join the uh, drama club in, in school or anything like that. It was more like, I'm going to go away and do this. In fact, my quote for the yearbook when you're graduating from high school, and uh, my quote was, future plans, go to the big city and become a star. <laughs> And uh, nobody knew what I was talking about, but that it was me finally admitting my lifelong plan. And you were very positive about wanting to do that. You had no backup plan. I had no backup plan. The only thing for a moment that I thought could be a backup career was wrapping Christmas presents at a department store because, you know, oh, they had the counters with the beautiful and I loved I love that. It was also very appealing, but I stuck with the acting thing. Where do you think that confidence and certainty came from? Was that something that came to you from the way you were brought up, from your family life? I think I was brought up to be pretty confident in myself, yes. I think that was uh, just part of our family, yeah. My my parents were very hardy, you know, self starter people they could they could do anything they were the kinds of people that could fix the car and build the house and grow all the food and and uh and all that and my dad particularly was always including me in whatever he was doing whether it was fixing the roof or building a shed or anything like that he'd say come on and help me with this and and it was never pointed out that this was unusual or anything. And, and he and he never said things like, girls can do anything. It was just never talked about. But there was always the assumption that I would be able to do whatever it was that he was doing. That you were capable, right. that you could achieve those yes. kinds of things. You're a tall woman, yes. as am I. Yes. <laughs> it's this very interesting thing when you're young yes. about whether people are self-conscious about it. Right. You've said that you struggled with that as yeah. a child and that you had the sense of wanting to take up less space. That's true. But at what point did that change for you? You know, it actually changed when I stopped growing. I think I had this fear that I was going to just be the tallest person ever because I was always, always the tallest. And I went to a very small high school, and so I was the tallest person in my graduating class, not just female. So after I left 
my hometown and went off to college. Well, first I went to Sweden for a year as a foreign exchange student. And then... Um, That's a country full of tall people. They're tall, yeah. And, and, and suddenly uh, I didn't seem so abnormal. And, and uh, they said things like, you must have been very popular back home. And I'm like... Uh, yeah, I was. I had lots of boyfriends. <laughs> I'm like, are you crazy? But it was really in college and, and, uh, leaving home and being able to sort of reinvent myself that I, I became completely fine with it and happy about it, frankly. It's always very convenient to be able to see over other people's heads. You can see the parade. It's true. You confided in your music teacher that you wanted to become an actor. Right. He recommended that you study drama at university. Yes. What was that experience like? Uh, he very specifically said Boston University. Mm-hmm. I secretly asked him, where should you, how do you study acting? If you want, he said, oh, you should go to Boston University. So that was it. I was going to go there. Thank God they accepted me. It was interesting. It was both wonderfully fulfilling and frustrating because, you know, here I was getting to do what I dreamed of and I got to be in plays and, and things like that at school. But there was also so much emphasis on theater at that time. And to the exclusion of everything else, it was really, we were doing Shakespeare and Greek <laughs> tragedies and things like that. And, and I knew that I wanted to be on screen, really. And it was not talked about or, or and it was sort of frowned upon, I have to say. Of course, this is back in the 70s. And then when I graduated from school, nobody, I didn't even think to ask, where, do you supposed to, where are you supposed to <laughs> what go? What do I do now? Yeah. Where, are we, where do you go if you want to be in movies? But everybody was going to New York, all my other classmates, to be in plays, of course. So I went to New York too. And then I was like, how am I supposed to get in a movie? I don't understand. So uh, where did, how did you find that path? So I came up with my master plan, which was, I know, I'll just become a model first, and then I'll just automatically get offered movie roles because Christy Brinkley was in movies and Lauren Hutton, and, you know, that I didn't stop to ponder, is it easier to become a supermodel than an actor? (laughs) I, that's what I did. I decided I'm going to become a model. And I did get uh, signed with a model agency. And I was able to earn my living. Um, the only cover I was on was New Jersey Monthly. Very important publication. Yet, yes, you probably in Australia don't realize how deeply important that is. But it was enough so that when they were casting the movie Tootsie in New York, which is where I was, they called model agencies to see if they had if they had any models who could act because the role called for being um for the character to be in her underwear a couple of times when she's sharing the dressing room with Dustin Hoffman so they figured oh well we'll see if there's any models that can act and so <laughs> they called my agency uh, who said we have one we have one completely to your requirements <laughs> fully trained yes she's fully trained given that you had that was something that you had wanted for mm-hmm. for a very long time and that you'd had that conviction not just that you would be an actor that but you would be on screen what did it feel like to arrive on set oh it was wild it was fabulous and really scary too because i didn't know if they were going to expect me to know what to do. Is there a certain 
language of the, of um, shooting movies that I should know. Uh, how do I? What if I'm supposed to know where to stand or you know that kind of thing? I had no idea how it would uh, work, but at the same time, I was thrilled. And of course, they show you everything of uh, how to do it, and uh, and that was no problem. And I was immediately very comfortable, very, very, very comfortable to the point where on the first day of shooting, I'm in my underwear shooting a scene with Dustin Hoffman, one of the biggest stars in the world. And um, Sidney Pollack, the director, called me over and said, why are you not nervous? I don't quite understand. <laughs> How could you not be nervous in this moment? I said, I, I don't know. Should I be? And he's like, no, but it's very curious. But uh, I loved it. I loved it. The uh, But the other funny thing about not knowing anything, I didn't know that you didn't have to come in on days when you're not in the scenes. I never, I, I don't know, they might have given me call sheets, but I didn't know what it was. And so <laughs> I came every day at six o'clock in the morning, every day for like six weeks or something. And, uh, Nobody said, uh, Gina, you don't Gina, have to be you here. No, you realize you don't have to be here. Uh, and I just would find my chair and put it right next to Sidney Pollack and sit next to him all day. Did you, do you feel like you learned a lot from oh, that yeah, experience? I really yeah. did. I learned a tremendous amount. Do you think that feeling of being comfortable immediately, was mm. that something to do with those people and that set? Was that a feeling that I found my place or a mixture of those things. I think it was a mixture of both that uh, partly it was that the people on the set were so welcoming. Uh, Sydney and Dustin couldn't have been more welcoming and, and gracious and really just treated me completely like a peer instantly, which was remarkable, I thought, and, and really set the bar very high. And then I think another part of it was like, well, yeah, this is what I was talking about. <laughs> One of the movies where you've obviously had such a huge impact and you've talked about the feeling of after Thelma and Louise, mm. about, about seeing the response from people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a movie that was obviously very important in your career, mm -hmm. hugely important in terms of, you know, the br broader thinking about a whole range of issues. During your first day on set on Thelma and Louise, you've talked about how you prepared to go through the script with Ridley Scott right. and your co-star, Susan Sarandon. Right. Can you tell us about that meeting? Ridley said, let's, the three of us get together and we'll just kind of casually go through the script and you can point out any things you might want to change. And so I prepared for this meeting by uh, figuring out what things, you know, maybe there's a line I wanted to change or cut or move or something. Uh, so I found all the things that I wanted to talk about. And then I went through and found the girliest possible way, planned out the girliest possible way to ask about these things. Well, this one, I'll just make it seem like a joke. And but maybe he'll take it seriously. And then this one, oh, I'm going to ask that on the set on the day because it's not that important. And this one, I wonder if there's a way to make it seem like it's his idea, you know, already anticipating that. I don't, I don't want anybody to think I'm, you know, pushy or, or anything but the most compliant person in the universe. And I hadn't met Susan Sarandon yet. So we meet and I'm already completely bowled over by, her, uh, how she is, how she just is in the world. She's just so serene and confident and 
just um, centered, I guess, is what I would say. And we sit down, and I swear it was the first page. We open the script, and she says, you know, this this line here, I think we should just cut that. I mean, we could either cut it or move it to page three. And my jaw was on the ground. I was, I, I literally, I mean, how I had gotten to be my age, 30-something, and never heard a woman just be that direct and say what she thought was so astounding to me. And he's just listening and they're discussing it, going back and forth and whatever. And it's all fine. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is the craziest. It was such a huge revelation to me. That she had no girly, <laughs> no, no girl filter mind, at all. Yeah. yeah, there was no, well, I don't know what you might think, but what would you say? No, it was just like, let's just cut this. And, uh, what, and I was like, what? So the whole experience was like, what did, what happened in that rest of that conversation when well, you? Well, I think I probably still was, well, I don't know what you might think, but, with you, uh, whatever, but it was an evolution over the pro- progress of the filming to observe her every day, all day, and learn from that, you know, really pick up uh, a lot of, just absorb a great deal of role modeling of, of how a different way to be in the world. Yeah, and just so to see those conversations, see that the sky didn't then fall in. Exactly, exactly. Um, and that there, there was a different way to do things. It's a fascinating. Right. And it's fascinating also that you remember that so clearly. So vivid. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, people might not realize because I played some badasses that I was so profoundly shy and apologetic for existing and when I was a kid and a young woman. The whole goal of life I was raised to believe was every single person like you, you know, and so have no needs, have no opinions, have no, don't ruffle any feathers ever, sacrifice yourself whenever possible. And so uh, it's been a long journey. And I think it's a very, it's an such an interesting experience because yeah. so many women have a, a version of that, right? Whether you mm-hmm. know more or less, right? Extreme, right? When you start in Thelma and Louise, there was a sense that this was a movie that captured something incredible. These two extraordinary stars, this story. You were nominated for an Oscar. And similarly, when you start in A League of Their Own, another sense in which, wow, this women carrying this movie, this story, mm. is this going to be the start of a whole lot of movies about women in those sports? That didn't happen. Mm-mm. At the time, why did you think that was the case? At the time, I believed it because all the press predicted uh, when Thumb and Louise came out that this this changes everything. That was the big and, – and some people thought it was a horrible thing, that the change it would bring would be just – devastating but uh that that definitely it would change how we think about cinema and female lead characters and, and then female script female scripted right. movie too right of exactly and and then the very next movie was league of their own uh, where it was the same thing and like you said and now this proves women's sports movies can be giant blockbusters i believed those predictions but 
as time went on, I saw that uh, it wasn't happening and that the same phenomenon would happen every five years or so. And maybe it had been happening before that, but I didn't, hadn't paid attention. But um, First Wives Club, for example, came out. Well, this changes everything. Now 50-year-old stars can have a giant hit movie. And then the next one and the next one. And, and I saw that this is not happening. I mean, I didn't have numbers yet. I wasn't aware of any research that was showing it's not happening, but it seemed like it's not happening. It wasn't until 10 years after League of Their Own came out that the next female sports movie came out, which was Bend It Like Beckham, not even made in the United States. And name the other ones since then, you know, it's um, impossible. So when I was doing interviews during all this time, People would invariably say, do you think things are getting better better for women in Hollywood? Right around the time of Thumb Louise, I would say, yeah, I think so. And a couple of years later, I said, well, I'm not sure, but I certainly hope so. It seems, you know, like that'll happen. And, and then uh, eventually I was saying, you know what? I don't know. Google it. I really, I don't know. I don't have the numbers. But it seemed like it was just not true. And I, I became a little bitter about the media constantly saying on very little evidence, now things have changed. I was here shooting. I was in Sydney shooting a movie when both Mamma Mia and Sex in the City, the first one, came out. Gigantic global blockbusters. And all the press said, now... 100% forever. Positively, this changes everything. And it didn't. And uh, I just thought, we got to stop saying that. And we have to change it. And in parallel with that, those experiences of your own in the movies and, you know, as an actor, a working actor, in terms of the roles you're offered, in terms of those kinds of conversations you're having, in parallel with that, you see, you have a daughter. Mm-hmm. You sit down when she's, you know, preschool age, and you're looking at what is available on screen right. for her to see. And you become aware of the fact that once you start to look at it, the data is right there in front of your eyes, as it right. were. Right. Just the number of women on screen, the number of times the mothers in stories disappear, whether right. it's Finding Nemo or you know whichever version of those, whether the mother's a fish <laughs> or a penguin or a person or a deer or a deer. <laughs> that this is is something that is incredibly strong in children's entertainment. And so at that point, you mm. know, something about that experience makes you think we want to tackle it in a substantial way. Mm-hmm. And so you commission a huge piece of research into mm-hmm. that. Tell us about why you wanted to do that and what you did. I think it's partly because I had been in roles that resonated with women and I was just sort of keyed into how are women being portrayed in Hollywood. That when I started watching children's entertainment with my daughter, um, that I noticed this and it, it struck me instantly. Where are the female characters? I don't get, wait a second. This is all wrong. This can't be what we're showing kids because it's the 21st century. We're not showing kids anymore that girls are second class citizens, like the fifties or something. And yet it seemed like we were. So I didn't intend to make it my life's mission, as I pretty much have now. At first, I thought I would just mention it within the industry and and see what other people were saying about it. And so when I had a meeting with a director or a producer or whatever, I'd say, what do you think about the fact that there's so few female characters in kids' movies? And 
this was the eye-opening thing that every single person said, oh, no, no, that's not true anymore. No, that's been fixed. And is I was very often talking to people who make kids media and they were 100% convinced that any problem of gender inequality uh, was p long in the past and had been fixed and that they were some of the people who had fixed it. I said, okay, so none of this is adding up. How could nobody be noticing what I think is so glaringly obvious? And that's what made me say, I want the number. I, w I really want to know if I'm right. Either I'm crazy or they all are. No, <laughs> or the rest of the world is. But uh, I really, I just really wanted to know. And then I also thought, if I get this data, the purpose was not to try to educate the populace. I'm going to teach the world about this. It was very specifically, I'm going to get this data and I'm going to go back to the creators in Hollywood and share it with them privately in a, hey, I'm in the industry too, we're friends, what do you think about this kind of a way? And that's uh, that's what we did. And that obviously was the start of a huge amount of work, mm. a huge amount of groundbreaking research. All of that information that you wanted to show, yes, women, mm. all of these aspects of it, the number of women characters, the kind of women characters, right. even, you know, even the involvement of women in non, non you know, the right. representation of just sheer the number of people on screen, but also the number of creative people, the number of women in, in yes. roles making decisions right. in movies. Your approach to, to what you do with that information has been very practical, mm. looking at taking that data back to the industry and presenting it to them very much in a way of mm -hmm. what's going to happen next. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I think you, you've talked about having very much a sense of how important that is. This right. is something that shapes the world of girls and women right. and seeing a role model or an inspiring character or just seeing something that resembles the world they actually live in right. can make a huge difference to right. them. Right. So what impact do you think you've managed to have on industry in the years that you've been, you know, spent on this important work? Well, we've really tried, it's been about 10 years now and we've really tried to saturate the industry to be, go to every studio and every production company and guild and television network and We've been multiple times uh, now to most of them, and we we can see with this very clear evidence when people say, you know, you changed my project. Um, we've actually yet to leave a meeting where somebody hasn't said, you just changed my project. So it's very gratifying. It sometimes happens right on the spot. We But we wanted to know what impact were we actually having and uh, did a survey that found 61% of People who have heard my presentation in Hollywood said it changed two or more of their projects and 41% said it had changed four or more of their projects. So we really know that we're making a difference. And most people I meet now, it wasn't this way, let's say, five years ago or so, but most people I meet now say, I know, I've heard about what you're doing, I know what you're doing, and maybe tell me about their friend so-and-so who changed his movie because of what they learned. And of course, you took on the ultimate, you know, the ultimate role for girls and young women to watch on television as the commander in chief. Yes. What was that like? Oh, it was so much fun. <laughs> it was so much fun. I loved it. I loved being the president. It's so funny because uh, 
when my show got canceled, a, a lot of people said, oh, you should run for the real thing now. So I was visiting my dad once and I said, dad, I think I'm going to have to run for president. And he, he said, well, you sure you want that job? Not, what are you talking about? I mean, that was him. You know, yeah. it's like he already had assumed that I could be if I wanted to, uh, but I would just be sure that I really wanted that job. Thank you so much for uh, sharing those stories. It's been wonderful to talk to you and wonderful to hear you talk to our audiences at the Sydney Opera House. Oh, thank you so much. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program. Our show is hosted by me, Anne Mossop, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Mark Pickles, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.